childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99 cents any sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Say It in Contagious. I'm Tova Wang. Hi, I'm Adrian Burgos. This is Lincoln Mitchell. I'm Frank Garitti. I'm Craig Calcaterra. And I'm Stephen Goldman. So as I'm sure all of you know, Henry Aaron passed away a few days ago. And I know that you have probably, like all of us, been reading some of the coverage and reading the obituaries and reacting in different ways to his passing and what it means for baseball and what it means for our current context. And so we thought we would really dedicate at least the majority of this podcast to talking about him, his life, and how he resonates today. So I think that we can just start out with the question of, you know, what did he mean to you? Let's start off with Frank. Yeah, I took the news of Aaron's passing really hard. Uh, It completely knocked me down for 24 hours. I did not know Henry Aaron. I didn't see him play live. I've only seen the the the, the footage, the highlight films, of course, the the, the footage of uh, home run seven hundred fifteen, and I I learned through a text from you, Tova. I had just finished teaching a class, and then I see a text from you saying that uh, it's really sad what happened with Aaron. I was like, what? Who Aaron? What? And then when I saw it, you know, on on social media, it just knocked me down. And so I, it took me a while to figure out, you know, why I was so devastated. This is a man who lived a full life. He lived 86 years. He achieved everything you can in the game of baseball. He transcended in so many ways. And and yet I felt a tremendous sense of grief. And I think partly it's because, you know, some of the things we've talked about in our earlier podcasts is his passing represents, you know, the end of, of a certain era and the passing of a number of prominent baseball players over the last year, many of the black ones, you know, from Lou Brock to Bob Gibson, Frank Robinson, Joe Morgan, among others, when black players excelled at the game and made it socially relevant. And that seems totally absent from today's game. I mean, aside from what's happened in recent years around the protest for, with the movement of black lives. So I, you know, I, I felt a sense of grief and, and a chasm between the game that I grew up learning and loving and playing myself and what I see now. And that, that surprised me. I mean, that was not something that I expected to feel in response to his passing. It's interesting, isn't it, Frank, that Henry Aaron had the socially relevant part forced upon him. He was not in the front ranks marching with Martin Luther King. And it's not that he wasn't sympathetic, but because he was. And he he always said that people told him, people in the civil rights movement, I should say, hey, just keep doing your thing. You're more valuable that way. But 
it, he wasn't somebody who sought that out, even though he was playing in the the center of it. That's exactly right. Uh, and you know, in some ways, that's 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 Black history in general. People forced into a circumstance. Uh, and how do they respond, respond in that circumstance? And his response was, uh, you know, not to ignore racism, racism, as some people have said in the coverage of his passing, but by, yes, doing it on the field and being excellent and having the, the luck to be a black man who could be excellent on the field for 25 years, essentially. Uh, and, 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 and by just doing that and being excellent, he became socially relevant. You know, and, and in a lot of ways, that, that, that's sort of a uh, an exemplar of what we see often when we look at the histories of marginalized people who experience exclusion and they become socially relevant just because they're excellent at what they do. And in his case, he was excellent on you know one of the biggest stages uh, that the U.S. had, certainly Major League Baseball throughout his career. And at the time that it was most it was most important for something like that to happen to bring to life for for many people some of what was going on in other spheres. And, you know, he certainly didn't shy away from it either. Uh, he let his playing on the field speak for itself, but he sure didn't shy away from those conversations either. One of the things that Aaron signals to us is he was part of what I love to call the baseball's greatest generation, the generation of integration pioneers, ball right. players who literally had to face the entrenched racism of Major League Baseball of many of its fans to overcome that, to win those fans over as baseball fans and the harder challenge as fellow human beings, you know, and Hank, Henry Aaron had a certain way about him that really brought a number of people to embrace him and another set of people to hate him because what's fascinating is like, he wasn't outlandish. He wasn't loud. He let his, hammer do the talking and when so many people in america they wanted to be able to hate him because of his personality but in many ways he was just chocolate just yummy you know and uh, and, and, and they, they had to you know, throw their racism onto him in order to hate him because he was going after babe Ruth's record and for that was so for so many people that was the the pinnacle of baseball achievement and a couple of other points is that you know Part of the Henry Aaron story is that the team moves from Milwaukee to Atlanta, and he is in the heart of the old Confederacy, really at the height of the civil rights movement. Go back and listen to Vince Scully's call, which I'm sure many of you have, or all of us have since this happened, since he died. And he says, a black man in Georgia getting a standing ovation, which it's, it's, it's the 1970s by then, but that was still significant. And he, I'm sure Henry Aaron wasn't in on the negotiations to have the team move from Milwaukee uh, to Atlanta, but it happened, and it, and it really changed his career and threw him into something that he maybe thought he'd escape. And he kind of had escaped. And Milwaukee was not as bad as, you know, Alabama, which is where he, where he had grown up. Lester Maddox was the governor at that time. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Carter was not, you know, not governor yet. I, I, I'm also, you, Adrian, you mentioned this thing about the, the great generation and, and, and some of the other players we could uh, include in that. One comes to mind is Frank Robinson, who died about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, who, you know, uh, for my money, had the for I mean, just unfortunately was the second greatest right fielder in baseball for almost his entire career, but one of the greatest players ever. Just Aaron was just even better. Of course, Willie Mays is a few years younger, but or older. I mean, it started a few years earlier. But what strikes me also when Aaron died, because like Frank, I was teaching. I we I think we, that's why we don't take each other's courses because we teach at the same time. And I I immediately emailed you. Tobit already tweeted you, but I, I screamed out. And in this COVID moment where 
you know, we've all lost family members. My wife downstairs where she was working said, oh, my God, what happened? And I said, Henry Aaron died. But part of, of for me, what, what Aaron meant, because, you know, I think I mentioned this before, I became a baseball fan, right? This was, this had just happened, him breaking the record. So that, that dialogue and that, the kind of the racism around it, I, I didn't, I wasn't there when it was happening, but I remember hearing it. But what I also, what, what saddens me also about the loss of a Henry Aaron or a Frank Robinson, and, and, and I have to say, because I don't bring this many happiness, it, it, it steals me for the loss of Willie Mays, which is going to happen, you know, at some point, uh, which will be devastating for me uh, because of reasons we've discussed uh, by my affiliations on this podcast. But these people who play in baseball for 23 years, you know, starting in the early days of the Eisenhower administration, staying there to the end of Watergate, however, you know, whatever 22 years you can stretch out a generation. I mean, my 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 father was a college student when Henry Aaron hit his first big league home run. And he was a divorced, trying to figure out his life, middle-aged father of two, you know, well into middle age. Relatable. <laughs> I'm sorry? Relatable. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. When, when Henry, you, you, I think, fortunately for you, not that relatable. But, but when, when Henry Aaron retired and the journey, you know, and the, and the journey for some of the players who came along when I was young, who I remember there, you know, for me, the one who I felt that most acutely was with Willie McCovey. But the way baseball... Part of the reason these stories, like Henry Aaron's personal story, have such resonance for a lot of people is they take us through the swath of American history. And Aaron, really, because of who he was, how good he was, what he did, uh, you know, the, the home runs and the RBI record, that, that it really doesn't. And it's one, one last anecdote, because I remember about five or ten years ago, I was riding my bike up to Columbia from my place for something. And I see a dude walking along Manhattan Avenue. The guy's probably 30 years old. And he's wearing a Henry Aaron Brewers jersey. For the two years he's been at the Brewers at the end of his career with number 44 on the back. And as I rode by on my bike, I yelled out, you know, cool, cool jersey, dude. And he kind of smiled and waved. And it was just kind of, and this was in 2015. And Henry Aaron is still, has that kind of an impact on people. So my my first experience with, with Henry Aaron came in the early 80s. And I was probably under 10 years old. And I was a baseball fan for a few years by then. But to me, baseball players were two things. Uh, one, they were sort of superheroes and they were separate in the culture from the rest of the culture. Sports, I, I viewed sports as a 10-year-old the way that a lot of adults view sports now as, oh, it's a completely separate thing. It has nothing to do with society and what happens in there is in this hermetic universe. So the, the real bad world, which I was only beginning to understand when I was 10 years old, um, didn't exist for sports as far as I knew then. The other thing that's, uh, baseball players were for me was uh, amazingly accessible uh, and uniquely accessible in my experience because of a lot of weird coincidences. Uh, I've written about this before, but a coworker of my father's ran a very large baseball card and memorabilia show in Detroit. Because of that, I got to meet a lot of the big names who were signing uh, autographs at these shows, uh, you know, backstage, as it were, before the show opened. And I got to meet Stan Musial and have a conversation with him when I was nine years old. I got to meet Mickey Mantle, Jack Morris, all these people that would show up there. I would get to just talk to one on one. Stan Musial, Mickey Mantle, and Jack Morris. <laughs> one of these things is not like the other. Well, they're, they're all <laughs> Hall of Famers, Lincoln. Come on now. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, technically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Quisenberry was way better. But anyway. Um, I would have much rather met Dan Quisenberry than Jack Morris. He was nice. Jack Morris was a jackass. We'll talk about that on that another podcast. Stan Musial bought me a soda and he actually used the word swell 
unironically. When <laughs> he, I wish my father were alive today so I could tell him that. He, that was his favorite uh, Me too. I second that. He said, he said, Craig, do you play ball? And I said, yeah. And he goes, that's swell. And I about died. Oh, my God. Even at nine years old, I thought that was a little over the top. But anyway, Aaron. Aaron came to this, this card show. In, in 1983 or 1984, I forget the year, but he, he came to it. I didn't get to meet Aaron backstage separately the way I did all these other players. And uh, I, no one really explained to me why there were rules for it. I just assumed Hank Aaron is more famous than everybody. So, you know, you know and he was because he was the home run king and that's the most important record. And so I didn't question that. But I, I went and got in line with everybody else to get the autograph. And instead of them sitting at a low table where you hand them your card or your ball or your photo or whatever you want signed, you know, shake their hand, get a picture with them, whatever... Uh, Hank Aaron was on this riser. He was on this, his table was set up on this tall riser and there were security around him. And when we went by, you know, me at nine, 10 years old, I had to reach way above my head to put the baseball card I wanted signed on the table. I couldn't even see him really. He slid it, he slid it back to himself or an usher slid it back to him. He signed it. It was slid back. You reached up, got the card and walked on. There was no interaction at all. And I thought that was the weirdest thing ever. So my brother and I go through the line. We get to the end of the line and I asked my brother, I said, Kurt, what's this all about? Why, why didn't we get to meet Hank Aaron? Why is he way up high like that? And he didn't know either. And some adult who was not far from us heard me say that. And the guy said, because people wanted to kill him. And I, I, I didn't understand that at all. I understood vaguely what the civil rights movement was. I understood what racism was. My parents had started to teach me that stuff already. I, 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 I got that. But in sports and, and Hank Aaron, why would anyone want to kill Hank Aaron? And it just completely shook my world. And, you know, as time went on, I, I learned about that and I understood that. But from that day in the early 1980s, when I was just a little kid, Hank Aaron was different. And it was the beginnings of me understanding that baseball was not a hermetically sealed world and that uh, the world was not a great place. In his autobiography, he published some of the hate mail. This is I Had a Hammer, which came out, oh, I don't know, about 20, 30 years ago at this point, I guess. And one of the letters that struck me, the hate mail that he got during the chase for Babe Ruth's record began, I pray that you let the record book stand. And the implication of this letter was that somehow the career home run record was greatly diminished by or would be diminished by a non-white person having it. But I pray that you let the record book stand has some weird implications to it if you try to follow it to its logical conclusion. I mean, here is a player who it, it true of any player, if you're going to play for 20 years and hit 35 home runs a year, you're going to hit 700 home runs. And I don't know if he was just supposed to spontaneously retire or kill himself or strike out on or start bunting all the time or start right and start bunting all the time. I'm not sure what Aaron was supposed to do at that point. And that does seem to me to kind of parallel the idea that, hey, here's a guy just doing his job. He didn't ask for all of this weight to be put on what he's doing. And yet all this extraneous stuff gets heaped in. And like Frank said, that is often the experience of people of color in this country. I want to just add, when you say he was just doing his job, we should also note that Aaron was well compensated for a player of his time, but his income relative to, you know, a great player today to a, a, an average household income was nothing like that. So he was, he was kind of doing a job that he had to do. I mean, this is how he had to make a living. 
in, in reading some of these things, I, I, I'd read this before, but, you know, they were making death threats, not just against him, but against his daughter. Yeah. Who, I believe a first year student at, at college. So imagine. Yeah, she had her own security. Right. I mean, imagine just doing your job, whatever that job would be, trying to teach your class, trying to write your, your newsletter, whatever it is, trying to make sure that people have a right to vote, you know, with that hanging over your head. It's a lot of shit. So when he was running around the bases, right, is a story that's been told many times, right? And when those two white fans come running on the field, like many fans would do in the 70s, you know, there was this great fear, right? Where people were watching, it's like, oh, my God, something's going to happen to him. And in fact, they were just going out there to to wish him well and be rambunctious like many fans were at that time. You know, the, the boundary between field and fans was uh, really permeable in those days, you know. So, yeah, no, it was tremendous anxiety and pressure that he was feeling, uh, that his whole family was feeling. And by extension, Black America probably watching this was feeling too, right? And so I think one of the things that others have pointed this out is that, you know, that for in that moment, you know, to some degree, if you put it in the context of, of Atlanta history too, this is the year that Maynard Jackson is the first Black mayor of Atlanta, right? Uh, it's a year when we're seeing a kind of a re- reimagination of Atlanta is when it becomes the Black Mecca, you know? I mean, and, 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 and people have talked a lot about the remaking of Georgia with respect to the most recent election. But we're seeing a moment like that in Atlanta politics at that time. And so to some degree, you know, part of the threat, I think, as I read it, of his of him um, um, achieving the home run record is, is it's his ascendance of black Atlanta. Right. And, and, and black folks in that moment when black mayors are becoming, you know, uh, political leaders, a congressional black caucus. I mean, in some ways, this is an expression of or an anxiety around black power uh, in a moment when black power politics were becoming institutionalized in the form of electoral politics. It's also reimagining the legacy of Babe Ruth. The racial politics around him were complicated, right? He was accused, and they, they would they would uh, uh, attack him with racist slurs when he was playing, saying that he had African American parent or something like that. And then he becomes this emblem of of whiteness, right? And what we know of Babe Ruth's politics, we don't know a lot, but we do know that he did. Uh, for example, he was a prominent German American who spoke out against the genocide in Europe, right? So we know that he was not. That's all we mean. It's maybe all we know about politics, but. He becomes this emblem of whiteness, which also. He was Catholic and pro-Democrat, as at least in the 30s. He supported Al Smith, but so did a lot of Catholic Democrats in 1928. <laughs> but he supported him for president. So did Lou Gehrig. You know, kind of related to this, one of the things I found myself feeling also was, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a terrible time. But I, I felt like, wow, that was kind of the last generation also where baseball was so central to American life and to society and and would play that bigger role in a public debate. And even when you were talking about the autograph signing and then the fans running on the field, it is so far from that now. I don't know how they do the autograph shows now, but I mean, I think it's really hard to feel a personal connection to the players. I'll tell you the other first thought I had was, and I know other people felt felt this way too, is thank God he lived to see Trump out of office. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, just by a few days, man, but he held on. You mentioned uh, Lester Maddox earlier, Steve. There's a bridge uh, that in between Atlanta and Truist Park where the Braves play now. It's a freeway bridge, and it's Lester Maddox Bridge. And that bridge has been uh, for years subject to, you know, people saying we need to change the name of this, we need to do something. And uh, yesterday during Aaron's funeral procession, his, his, the hearse carrying his body went from Truist Park over the Lester Maddox Bridge down to Atlanta to where he was buried. And it's uh, starting a new call to rename that bridge, among many other things, after Henry Aaron.
To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a Shakespearean actor. Oh, woe is me. Wherefore are thy claims help when I had a defender bender? Pardon the interruption, but when you file a claim with GEICO, your claims team will be in touch right away. But Willis, they forget about me later when thou needest updates. Um, no. They'll always be there to, um, helpeth you out. Well, I suppose that I should bemoan something else, like my lactose intolerance. Oh, whyest must Derry disagree with me so savagely? Geico. Great service, without all the drama. You spend the first hour of your vacation at the luggage carousel, thinking there's nowhere to go but up. But there is a place to go but up, because when you open your suitcase, you find it filled with dolls. Dolls like the ones in that movie that scared you so much you wet your girlfriend's bed. Ah, Marissa, the one that got away. You return the bag to the airport with relief. It lasts until you get back to your room, where a fallen doll waits to greet you. Don't let a suitcase full of dolls ruin your vacation. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing. Thinking about what, again, about what Aaron means to baseball history. And one of the things is when people often, it's the legacy of the Negro Leagues. And this having been the 100 year anniversary of the Negro Leagues. Losing him at the end of that year of commemoration is daunting for as we move forward thinking about that legacy of the Negro Leagues. But it reminds me of a question that many people had at conferences and interactions with Negro League players. And I saw, most often it was a white individual going up to them and asked them, aren't you bitter? And for me people like Henry Aaron and Monty Irving and others, they, and, and Buck O'Neill, they refused to be bitter because being bitter gave power to the oppressor then and now. They wanted to overcome that. They wanted to always be empowered by what they accomplished. And, you know, that was part of the, what I think many people saw as heroic in what Henry Aaron did and who he was as a person. He refused to be bitter, but that's not accepting racism. That's not accepting white supremacy to be the narrative maker of your story. And that is, again, the power of Henry Aaron. And yet, you know, Adrian, it's interesting because if if I remember right, you know, at least in terms of the, the evolving coverage of Aaron over the years, he was considered bitter for holding on to the hate mail, actually, right? Uh, and you know, there's, there's, so this, if you look at the way he's been covered over the years, I mean, the first, my first awareness of, of the hate mail, you know, was in the early '90s with the SI piece by Mike uh, Capuso, right, in which it's titled "A Prisoner of Memory." I mean, if the book, the article was trying to, you know, sympathetically portray him, you know, as you know, dealing with the trauma of receiving, you know, tens of thousands of pieces of hate mail. You know, he he was seen as, as bitter in some you know to some degree, right? And overlooked because partly because he was overlooked with respect to Willie Mays, he wasn't as flamboyant. And but partly because, you know, there's some sense that how how could he hold on to these letters? Why is he holding on to this? Doesn't he know that most Americans loved him? And that and that may well be the case. That you know, it, it is absolutely true that he became a hero to people defined as white. Absolutely, for all the reasons that you would want him to be a hero. But, you know, the bitterness narrative, you know, stayed with him, too, when it became clear that he refused to to let go of the memory of that hate mail because he wanted his children to see what he went through. He wanted America to see. He held up the mirror to America, to this country. Right. And and so even in his case, over time, you know, he's resuscitated and remade into this figure that we saw, you know, in some of the press coverage last week as the dignified person who who, you know, ignored racism when he did not ignore racism. He didn't have the privilege of ignoring racism. Right. Um 
But yet, even in his case, he had to come through that story, uh, you know, which is interesting. You know, it's really interesting to see the way we miss we, the way that the kind of the place of the, of the black American hero is an interesting story in and of itself, particularly around these narratives of dignity. Right. Uh, and turning the other cheek and the mischaracterization of Martin Luther King's ideas. Uh, when Martin Luther King, you know, confronted directly racism, that was what his entire career as a, as a civil rights activist was about. So, you know, some of this, too, is about the kind of the remaking of Aaron's image after his playing days and how that changes over time. And, and there was no way for Aaron to win. Let's let's be clear about that. It, this this thing happened in 2014, where Aaron was interviewed. I think it was in the run up to uh, Jackie Robinson Day. And he gave an interview and he said, you know, racism still exists. Uh, they, you know, they used to wear hoods. Now they wear suits and ties. Um, you know, it's about the most anodyne way you could describe the existence of racism, which racism exists. I don't think that's a controversial thing. But he said that in an interview. And then he got more hate mail for saying racism isn't dead. And he got racist hate mail for that. There wow. was just absolutely nothing that he could do. This, Yeah, this was like in April of 2014. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I know. But I it just still astounds me, even though it shouldn't the way that everyone gets to describe Hank Aaron's reality other than Hank Aaron or the same goes for any black person or any person of color. Well, and I think he felt that throughout his career as well. I mean, the way the press portrayed him while he was playing that they, you know, they were constantly mischaracterizing him, his personality, his life situation, his, his living experience. And uh, you know, I think he did become probably more standoffish, perhaps. I don't know what the right word is that was um, maybe part of the bitterness narrative that, that entered into the equation. But um, that was something that went on throughout his life and, and just got ratcheted up a little bit in the day or two after he, he died. I wrote about this at Baseball Prospectus. I found in writing the piece up a New York Times magazine piece from early 1958. So this is the year after he or the Braves won the World Series over the Yankees and he won the MVP. And the author describes him as a slow moving somnolent type whose running style is shuffling. He has an atavistic approach that means primitive to hitting. He maintains a leisurely air and has carved out his own niche, preferably a horizontal one. And in the outfield, he's nonchalant. The list of, of stereotypes is amazing. But that still goes on. You hear about players. You hear about players who don't play hard or nonchalant. You know now, and who are they that they're usually referring to, right? And that didn't change. I mean, I have books when I was learning about baseball in the mid seventies, again shortly after this record. The books that I got my hands on about Henry Aaron said not quite that, but very, very similar things. That that. That trailed him throughout his career. What what strikes me is that it's for me the Henry Aaron story, which is kind of the next chapter of the in terms of the coverage and the way he was portrayed, which is kind of the addendum to the Jackie Robinson portrayal. It's so enmeshed in Christianity. I mean, when I and 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 you know, there's there's something deeply disempowering about saying turn the other cheek. I mean, I remember as a left-wing secular post-Holocaust you know, Holocaust Jew going to Catholic school for 10 years and just having that pounded into us, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, so that at the demand to a Henry Aaron or a Jackie Robinson, that's the narrative into which the larger culture fits them. And of course, if someone, t- it, it, the, the reality is, and I'm not a Christian, but the reality is if someone is turning the other cheek, 
they can't really hurt you. They can't really do anything to you. They can't really stand up for themselves. And that is why I think so. So, so it's it's an easy it's, it's a comfortable place to put, narratively speaking, a Robinson or an Aaron. And it also has theological resonance with the dominant uh, religious story that, that we tell each other in America. And we honor it in the breach, of course, when it comes to white people. Can we talk a bit about what Craig just brought up in the, the reaction to Henry Aaron saying as late as 2014 racism still exists? Because white America, I feel like this is not a very controversial thing to say, has trouble facing that history. And we can see it in the reaction to the 1619 Project say, no, it's not. American history is not centered on on slavery. It's not centered on racism. And when I wrote that piece, and you can check this out in in the comments on Henry Aaron, some of the commenters were like, well, Roger Maris went through the same stuff that he did. But uh, yes, Roger Maris got hate mail, but no one accused Roger Maris of being subhuman. And that is at that point any comparison evaporates. Roger Maris was not made to feel like an alien in his own country or his own profession. He was just told repeatedly, you're no Babe Ruth, which no, he wasn't, but it didn't, it didn't matter. The thing that I, I find is that we cannot acknowledge these things. And it goes to a, a lack of empathy for whether it is discussing the centrality of slavery in the history of our country or the centrality of racism, or even up to the present day with things like affirmative action, where white America cannot understand the history that is behind the need to rebalance the the society such that everyone has an equal opportunity going forward. White America can, can appreciate the history. They just want to pretend, we just want to pretend that it's history, right? And then it stopped maybe in 1965, maybe in 1974, maybe when Barack <laughs> Obama was elected. I don't know. Pick a winner. But, they, but white America wants to believe it, it was the past, right? And when you, and when you come up with a, a story about Henry Aaron dealing with it with dignity, well, that's a that's a nice ending for white America. Those horrible people did horrible things that have nothing to do with what's going on now. But Henry Aaron, you know, stopped that by being dignified and turning the other cheek and whatever the hell else people want to say that didn't happen. And that's a way of of putting it farther back in the past and not accepting it now. That's what that's all about, a hundred percent. For each generation. What's so fascinating is, so Henry had the receipts. Like he literally can show you the receipts of the death threats that he faced. And people are like, oh, no, no, you just need to throw that away. You just need to put that behind you. You know, that's bitterness to them. As, as Frank noted, holding the mirror of truth about racism is not bitterness. It's called history. And as a historian, it, I'm so fascinated by people saying, Burn the documents. Get rid of the documents. You don't need it. We know it happened. It's like, no, you don't. Because there are plenty of people who see what happened on January 6th and are still denying what happened. You know, and that was just earlier this month. So when we talk about what Hank Aaron went through, there are plenty of people, oh, he couldn't have really faced death threats. I'm sure people in 2014 were saying, no, you know, he's overblowing it. And it's like, this is the lived experience of so many black athletes, black politicians, uh, black people, period, that even when you show them the receipts, it's like, no, I still, that, that's in the past where I don't believe you. Something else must have been going on. Because the black athlete who ascends and transcends the way Aaron did, 
uh, and even those who don't, but who have the privilege of playing professional sports or you know achieving a degree of notoriety, incur a debt of gratitude, right? I mean, this is behind shut up and dribble, right? Uh, incur a debt, like you made it, so be grateful, right? Uh, shut up and play and don't talk about racism because you made it. And Aaron made it. The thing about his story that's so remarkable, which I admired and grieved at the same time, was that he, he lived 86 years. Many black heroes die <laughs> because uh, Jackie Robinson is a great example, yes. right, of the people who had to endure that pressure, right, to hold it together, to perform, to withstand the racism, to figure out when to speak back, when to fight back, when to not. And many of those integration pioneers in other sports you know, die young. You know, doing the research I did for even integration of college football in Texas, I guess it's striking that a number of the people who are those early pioneers who come through the Southwest Conference in Texas, they die young. And they die run for, young for a variety of reasons. But the pressure of integration was overwhelming for so many of them. And so the thing that you can celebrate about Aaron is that he survived. Uh, when most of the time, you know, many of our black heroes don't. We honor those who, who were assassinated or killed, right? Uh, you know, it reminded me of somebody like Angela Davis in a completely different context. The day that she passes on is going to be a tough day for me, too, because she's somebody who withstood, who still struggles. She's an activist, so it's different, right? But, you know, that's, it's very rare when you find people from these communities who are able to be excellent for a sustained amount of time, confront racism in their own way, and live to tell about it and live for us, you know, long enough for us to celebrate them while they're alive. Well, and he was strong right up to the end. I mean, I, I hadn't realized that he had gotten vaccinated a couple of weeks earlier. Um, I had not actually read at the time, and I, I maybe I should have, but I did not read about the comments he made about the uh, protests and uprising over the summer about George Floyd and how he wished that he was out there with people if he could be physically. Um, so he was still you know, going at these issues and, and not to speak of all the work that he did after he retired, working for the Braves organization, I think for many years, I don't know when he that ended, and focusing so much on recruiting and nurturing Black players in the game, which is something that, you know, we talk about all the time as going repeatedly unaddressed uh, in baseball. He did. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Toba, because he and Frank Robinson, who are largely peers, stayed in the game. And, and you know, it's striking because it's... It, Dusty is sort of another legacy. Right. And, 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 and that's right. That's right. And, and, you know, whereas Willie Mays didn't. And to me, that's, a, that's an interesting contrast. But, and, but, but, you know, you talk about mentoring. There's, there's a, you know, Dusty Baker was the only, was the best friend Glenn Burke had in baseball. And that is... A lot of the, the reporting on that doesn't put in the context, which is the relationship that Baker and Ralph Gar, who was a teammate uh, at that time on the Braves, right. had with Henry Aaron. And Henry Aaron, you know, uh, leading by, by example, illustrating to them the importance of that kind of mentorship, which Baker showed uh, to Glenn Burke. So, but but it, it is striking that he stayed in the game because, and, and to me that's important because it, you know, in, in an almost literal sense, it, 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 it vests Henry Aaron in the game, it, it the game has to reckon with Henry Aaron because he's there. I mean, Adrian had, had talked off camera, off mic about him seeing him at Cooperstown, but he's not just in Cooperstown. He's there. He's not someone who just gets trotted out for a ceremony here and there. And and that also it kind of continues his impact, continued his impact because he hadn't, I mean, Henry Aaron hadn't swung at a pitch in a big league game since 1976. And he had an impact well beyond 1976. 
And in that sense, he stands out. I mean, Robinson is, is, and there are others. You know, think about Bill White's another person who stayed in the game for a while, right? But that was because Ted Turner hired him, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, in some ways, you know, it, it, requ- it, it depended on, you know, the benevolence of a white owner, right? Which, as it always does. But it, it, even that was not a – that was not a – I remember watching the, the – you know, remember when ESPN was doing the 50 greatest athletes of the 20th century, and then they had, you know, they had one of their episodes on, on Hank Aaron. And one of the things that it highlighted was that, you know, it was very tenuous his relationship to the game until Ted Turner decided to hire him and make him give him a significant position in the Braves organization. And Bowie Kuhn, who was, you know, completely overmatched by baseball, uh, banned Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays for life. That was a smart move. Yes. And, and, and Bob Lurie did bring Willie Mays back in, but in a different I mean, he was much younger than it was in the mid 80s. And, and Mays never played that role that Aaron did around. Uh, I mean, the, he would go to the Giants games, you know, even now but in a different way related to Aaron's impact on player development, which was after his career and trying to nurture African-American players in in the game. I was really struck uh, the other day, the Yankees traded a a prospect, a series of prospects to the pirates for Jamison Tyon. And among the players who went back was, and I apologize if I'm I'm mispronouncing this aspect of his name, but he was a, uh, a ball player named Kanan Smith, Najigba. And uh, if I'm getting that that latter part wrong, I apologize. But last summer, when the George Floyd prospects were going on, he is a player of color from Texas, and he had pressured the Yankees organization to make a uh, pro Black Lives Matter statement. And among the things that he said when he was interviewed at the time was he estimated that there are seven or eight black players in the entire Yankees minor league system. And that was the kind of thing that I was aware of. And yet to see it stated in such stark terms was somehow shocking to me. That is shocking when you, exactly when you look at it. Like I mean, that. I'm glad that there, there's, there was a young black player who had a lot to lose by speaking out, did so. And maybe going back to, what we've been talking about also about is this uh, 2020 a moment in baseball and in other sports where there's a lot of social justice activism then that then dissipates afterwards. And it'll be interesting to see if the players live out what I think Henry Aaron would have wanted to be his legacy of um, continuing to be in the game and all, all the senses of that and continue to work on bringing more young black players into the game and audiences and fans and management ownership you know the decline of african americans in in baseball in major league baseball has a lot to do with partly what we're talking about in that the first generation of african american players who integrated the major leagues often could not get a job in baseball when they were done they were not hired as managers this is what you know frank robinson had to wait so long to get his opportunity to be a manager. One of the interesting things was Gabe Paul uh, had a conversation with Frank. Uh, Gabe Paul at that point was a general manager of the Yankees. And he had a conversation with Frank Robinson about the Yankees managerial position. They're about to hire. And Gabe Paul said, you know, if you had experience, I would hire you to be the Yankees manager. And Frank Robinson said, well, I've been managing in the Puerto Rican league for the last you know, several years. And, you know, they won championships. And Gabe Paul's like, that's not experience. And that is what African-American men had to go through after their playing careers were done. 
is there was still those people in power who are defining what you have to bring to the table is not what we want, not the way we want. I'll tell you another story about Frank Robinson managing that I was, it's in my forthcoming book, but I'll give you a little preview of this. When Bob Lurie was interviewing him to hire to manage the Giants, he got it. He got a call from the owner of the Orioles, and he was told, and he said, "I'm here interested in looking at, at hiring uh, Frank Robinson to manage." And he said, "Yes, you know, yeah, we're looking at it." And the owner said, "If you hire him, you won't be able to fire him," meaning that you won't be able to fire an African American manager, so you shouldn't hire one. Lurie hired him anyway, but. Uh, you know, and, and he almost won the division for them in 1982, which would have been extraordinary. But that does speak to the other barriers, right? And that, and that of course, is nonsense, right? I mean, it's nonsense. But that's what he's saying is don't hire the black guy. Just ask Willie Randolph and get another job. I, that's exactly what I meant, who I was thinking of when I was thinking about, isn't that still going on? And, I mean, he's the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean. Yeah, the unfortunate thing about uh, the, you know, the I mean, we're still only a week out from Aaron's passing, but. You know, it, it is another moment when Major League Baseball tips, you know, gives itself a pat in the back, uh, you know, for Aaron's uh, impact uh, when, you know, in, in many ways he, he transcended uh, in spite of Major League Baseball. You know, Major League Baseball didn't know how to actually celebrate his um, his achievement when he hit that home run on April 8th, 1974, right down to, you know, Bowie Kuhn, you know, not being there that evening, you know. And so really the Aaron passing should you know, if I, you know, if I had my ways, you know, really, again, push this question about, you know, blackness and whiteness in baseball, actually. Right. Um, and the ways in which it should become a conversation again uh, this year at some point uh, about uh, the state of the game now. Uh, you know, and as a historian, I love we honor our black, uh, you know, our, our black uh, historical figures. But that that sometimes signals, you know, this kind of gesture of distancing oneself once people become once black folks become part of the archive sometimes that that's that's a signal that they're becoming pushed into the past and away from the present and that's certainly what that's the narrative strategy of major league baseball you know they do every year with jackie robinson and really the passing the anniversary i mean his death you know should should generate another conversation about you know uh blacks and latinos and people of color and women in baseball and, and hopefully that will happen Welcome back to the quickest podcast ever. Brought to you by Kohl's. Today's topic, fall style. Wait, wasn't it just June? Right? So I went to Kohl's. Of course you did. I got a cute Kara Santana for Nine West sweater for 25% off and a great pair of Vans. Love Vans. And save 25% on a champion hoodie for my husband. Ooh, sounds cozy. You should go. You'll get 15% off or 15, 20, or even 30% off with a Kohl's card. BRB. Select styles. Offers end September 26th. Champion coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. Childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99-cent any-sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm scared to death to Google the phrase Henry Aaron transcended anything because you know, it's out there, man. I just, I'm just afraid of the internet as far as that goes. Greg, you have to add the keywords grace and dignity to when you get hurt. <laughs> 
Oh, that's all over the place. Well, I mean, the the first firestorm of that happened just moments after it was announced that Aaron died. Jeff Passan of ESPN got completely raked for his, you know, grace and dignity tweet or something like that. And I, you know, I know Jeff a little bit. I, he just wasn't thinking he's autopiloting, but that's what people autopilot to. It's what white people autopilot to anyway. And he did that. The local, the local sports columnist in the Columbus dispatch where I live, the headline was grace and dignity. And I was almost like falling over when I saw that it it's everywhere. No one can help themselves. Right. Which means something different when applied. I mean, Joe DiMaggio was always applied, uh, uh, described as playing with grace and dignity. It, it was it meant something very different. It has a, a very different meaning. Joe DiMaggio, when he was a young player, there was a profile of him in life, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Lincoln, that talked about how he uh, doesn't speak with an accent and he can read and write in English and doesn't comb his hair with olive oil. And it's it's it doesn't the, smell like garlic and doesn't smell right. And the the question for him in, in that time and for for Hank Aaron or Henry Aaron, excuse me, when we say grace and dignity is what was the alternative? You have a gun to your head, and if you want to continue to be in the public eye in that time or place, you didn't have a lot of choice but to dance to the tune that was being called for you. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit later, but the alternative is to be Dick Allen, who gets run out of base. I mean, that's largely run out of base. Not, not, not quite in the caliber of Henry Aaron as a hitter, but who was, but not that many cuts down. I want to bring up a different reaction that I had to his passing, which I think will annoy Lincoln, which is always fun. But it also, they kept repeating the the video of Henry Aaron uh, when Barry Bonds broke his record. And I got so angry all over again. Not just because Bonds, to me, cheated his way, however you want to say it, to the record, but that he put... Henry Aaron threw that and Henry Aaron had, you know, that was another moment where apparently he acted with dignity and grace, but it was really kind of a compromised position. But I, I got angry at Barry Bonds all over again. And it was Henry Aaron's good friend, Bud Selig, who made that happen because Bud Selig decided steroids were fine for a long time. Howard Bryant uh, talks about this. You know, so he wrote uh, his biography of Aaron, uh, Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron, the last hero. And, and he says he had to convince um, Henry Aaron to go along with the project or at least, you know, talk to him about the biography because he thought Bryant wanted to talk to him about Barry Bonds. And Henry, Henry Aaron didn't want to talk about the Barry Bonds record at all. You know, he really wanted to shy away from that dynamic. And so you know, one of the things that Bryant did is, is show him that uh, or convince him enough that he wanted, you know, he wanted to write a book about him, you know, and that the Bonds question was secondary. And, you know, of course, this is this is inching us towards a Hall of Fame discussion, which we could have now or at some other point, perhaps. Uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, this question of the the significance of his record, what it means, you know, and, and whether Bond, I mean, my sense is that most people don't recognize Bonds' record and that Aaron's, you know, place is secure, which raises the question of the function of records to, you know, to begin with. Another reason that I think you're right about that, but another reason is, is that it's hard to imagine any record in baseball that being broken. I mean, within 20 years, less, fewer years than that, decade or so of Henry Aaron breaking that record, Pete Rose, another just, you know, charming, graceful, dignified man, broke Ty Cobb's record. And really, it wasn't that big of a deal. So, so Aaron does this at the last moment where this would have been of national significance. And that is why. And then, and then you fill in the story of African American ball player in Atlanta, and it becomes even bigger. But it was the last moment when 
I was going to say the exact same thing that I think even if Bonds hadn't used the cream and the clear as he did, the funny thing was he was using his PEDs wrong. But regardless of of what what wet because they're not topical, but regardless of, of whether he was enhanced or not, I don't think the record legit or otherwise would have had the same impact because the context wasn't the same. It's funny that you can't talk about the record without talking about the steroids and everything, but it's an interesting conversation to have. Sometimes it's very loaded, sometimes with the home run record, but it's more fun to have with the hits record. But, you know, we, we're sort of in this post-factual society in a lot of horrible ways, but in some ways it could be fun to be in a post-factual society in baseball. For example, I like to refer to Ichiro as the hit king. That pisses people off really bad. Of course, I'm doing that to piss people off. Do you refer to Sadaharu O as the home run king? You should. I, you know, I don't. I usually don't because he's just not in the news like Ichiro has been over the years. But you know, I, I certainly b- before, you know, a long time ago when I used to be a little bit more strident of a steroids apologist, I would talk about you know, I occasionally I'd call Barry Bonds the home run king. Now I'm ashamed of myself for saying that, but he's the record holder in the United States for home runs. And we could talk about the legitimacy of that one way or the other in a different way, but he does have the number. The number is real, but there's still a conversation to be had about that. People have their opinions of who the home run king is. I think they would have that even if they, the steroids didn't enter into it. I, 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 am not a fan of, of uh, this particular person, but Dave O'Brien is the beat writer for the athletic for the Atlanta Braves. He's covered the Braves for years and years and years. He, uh, he has a podcast on The Athletic, and it's called 755 is Real. That's the name of his podcast. <laughs> to me, there's a complicated racial politics there, right? Because the grace and dignity narrative makes Henry Aaron, the, the African-American ball player, that white reporters can write positive things about. Barry Bonds and his father, Bobby Bonds, who was a great player in his own right, not that cal- cal- caliber of player, but a great player in his own right, you cannot write about them that way. No. Right? Barry Bonds... Barry Bonds' record is not viewed as real as white America, not because he took steroids, but because he wasn't nice to the press. And to use a racial code word, he was always called surly. That's a big part of this. So I I think the racial politics are really complicated. Barry Bonds, I'm going to say this for the 107th time, hit more home runs off of pitchers who were taking steroids than anybody in baseball history. (laughs) (laughs) But don't you think, though, that that also has to do with the moment in time that we were not going through, we weren't in the immediate backwash of civil rights when Bonds set his record uh, versus when Aaron was doing it? But yeah, absolutely. But what I'm saying is that Barry Bonds's temperament was much closer to Dick Allen's than to Henry Aaron, than to Henry Aaron's temperament. And white American, white American sports writers who craft those narratives, was they were being nasty to Barry Bonds before he ever took steroids. Yeah, I mean, if you took the steroids away, I, I think it would be still a very different record-breaking experience. It wouldn't be nearly as just sort of like dreary as it was from a lot of people that that it came. It was like it was like on, on the day before the election in 2016, somebody wrote a piece. I think I don't remember where, but it was a great headline. It was assuming that Hillary Clinton was going to win, as we all were. And the, the headline for the article was Hillary Clinton's long, joyless slog to the presidency. <laughs> And, and and it was kind of Barry Bonds' long, joyless slog to the record. Yeah, but it's funny because, uh, you know, 1998, everybody was really big on the home run chase then because people were ignorant. But that's because you had, you know, a big white guy in Mark McGuire and uh, Sammy Sosa, who, you know, was treated in many, many ways as a caricature. Um, right. And Barry Bonds was never no, going to be treated. No, I mean, that... Yeah, if Barry Bonds was doing that in 1998 as opposed to what he did in 2001 or whatever, he he 
it would have been a very different story. And it has everything to do with who was involved and their temperament and their perception and all that. You remind me of this conversation I had in St. Louis at a baseball conference of all places. We're sitting around a table at lunch and I was kind of made the same point about uh, you about, you know, personality of Barry Bonds, why people hate him. So one of the other guys at the table says, well, tell me a white baseball player who has the same personality as Barry Bonds. I'm like, Mark McGuire. (laughs) 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 And I mean, they, they were both surly. Mark was very difficult to the press. And yet he, as a, since he was the white Paul Bunyan baseball figure, became elevated. And what's funny is that Sammy Sosa's sweetness rubbed off on, on Mark to make him even more heroic, more acceptable. <laughs> and then, of course, we found about Sammy and all the things that he did. But that's a whole other story for another podcast. That actually would take up a whole hour if we really dug deep because, <laughs> man, next time. I won't participate in that podcast. I, I'm, I'm half Dominican, and I will reserve for the right to, to, to remain silent on Sammy Sosa because there's only so much to say. However, the other fascinating teammate of, of Mark McGuire is Jose Canseco, who is also a fascinating guy who is, if you watch, it was really in, in a good way, a little nuts now, but he's fun. Let's not go from Aaron to Canseco. <laughs> yeah, we've really degraded the conversation. Like, by that's now. Just- you don't want it in the same sentence. You don't want it in the same podcast. And he and Tommy still have the record, I believe, for most home runs by two brothers in the major leagues. Because Ozzy just could not do anything as a big leaguer. Ozzy can say no. No, no. But they were identical twins, so they could play more games than, than Tommy and Henry. You know, you folks are raising this character question, which uh, was very much in the news uh, in the last 24 hours with respect to the Hall of Fame vote. Uh, I'm not an expert on the matter, but I, I did hear people talk about character as it relates to somebody who used to pitch for the Red Sox and the Phillies. The fascinating thing about it was Jose Canseco, of all people, threw shade at Kurt Schilling. You know what? I, and I hate this <laughs> because I'm, I'm so perpetually online. I see all of this, of course. You know, Jose Canseco is sort of created his own career now of of being the truth teller on steroids apparently and he's got his own issues but uh yeah he's he's giving crap to Schilling uh about his character and and I hate to admit that Schilling actually had a pretty good line in response Schilling's never had a good line about anything but uh he he did say uh yeah well you were on steroids but I still owned you bud and I looked it up and he did so Schilling was probably on steroids too you know this is another one of those let's all let's all blame uh the surly African-American guy (laughs) For the steroid scandal, right? Come on. Uh, I thought it was the, the petulant Latino guy, Jose. Well, wait, who's articulate then? That's the one I don't get. <laughs> <laughs> but the mastermind is always the Jew, Bud Selig, right? None of us are without sin. <laughs> well, I guess we should probably wrap up then, kids, unless anyone has any final thoughts. We can't end on me talking about a Jewish mastermind. <laughs> that can't be the final note. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to stop you before George Soros showed up. Can I say, by the way, just he got brought up before that Dick Allen was one of the most maltreated, misunderstood players in the the history of of baseball. And this actually makes for an interesting contrast with Aaron. And I'm not saying that Dick Allen didn't necessarily have some emotional or personality problems, because I think he probably did. But the larger part of it is that not everyone is set up personality wise to deal with to to quote rise above with grace and dignity they may not have that gene in them to to be able to rationalize and say i'll just do what i have to do and in his case 
he was the first African-American regular in Philadelphia Phillies history. He comes along 17 years after Jackie Robinson, and he is subject to an insane amount of abuse to the point that he has to wear a batting helmet at all times because people are just throwing stuff at him even when he's in the field. And he says to Philly's ownership, I can't deal with this anymore. Trade me. And he says it repeatedly. It's before Kurt Flood. It's before free agency. The reserve clause is still in full in effect. The ownership of the Philly says, nope. And so, and again, I don't know the percentage of this that was just the his personality and the percentage of it that was calculated, but he just stopped showing up sometimes. And he did what he could do to alienate himself from the franchise so he would finally get traded. And that seems to me to be as sane a response and as legitimate a response as any other to an impossible situation. But we don't laud him for that. I think there's a cadre of players who came in around the time of Dick Allen who fit that description. Bobby Bonds certainly does. Vita Blue, to a great extent, does. Again, what we're talking about, this is the next generation that didn't go into the Negro Leagues. That's right. Didn't get that camaraderie of fellow African-Americans playing together and moving. They don't really get the benefit of Abonte Irving as a teammate like Willie Mays did. They don't, so they're really facing it on their own. And this is the saga of baseball's integration story that tells us why we should not just celebrate 1947. Because it runs so deep. It's Louis Tiant in Danville, Virginia, bawling out his eyes, crying, I can't believe I have to go through this. You know, and that's in the, the early 1960s. It's Bill White like going through this. It's Henry Aaron actually was with Felix Mantilla in Jacksonville integrating. It's more than 1947. It's throughout the minor leagues that these black men are going through this experience and it persists. You know, it's so infuriating how MLB has just captured a moment, a, a year, 1947, as if that explains the problem of race and its solution. And Dick Allen's a great example of how the institutional racism of baseball was persistent. After all, as you mentioned, Stephen, what does Kurt Flett do when the Cardinals try to trade him to Philly? Right. Hell no, I don't go. <laughs> but, and, and then 1974 is the other bookend on that 47. Yeah. The year that Aaron breaks the record. That's exactly right. And just in that New York Times Magazine article I mentioned, the one that w- was framed so atrociously, the one quote from Aaron that really struck me, he was talking about playing in the low minors, I think in the in the Sally League. I might be remembering this incorrectly, but he was playing in Florida and got all this abuse. And he was asked, did it bother you? And he said something like, no, I was just a kid. It went in one ear and out one other. And then you can sense in the in the transcript of the quote kind of a pause. And he said, but I don't think I would like to do that again. And it, it just shows that he had, he was wired in such a way that he could withstand this at the same time that we can kind of laud him for having that kind of, of thickness of spirit. We should recognize that it is asking a lot of anybody to go through this. And it's it's asking a lot of anybody. I mean, anybody who says to you in any part of your life, whether you've lost a loved one or you've gone through a divorce or anything, but anyone who says, get over it, isn't it time you got over it, is kind of a dick. But in particular, to say that to Hank Aaron is obnoxious as hell. Throw away those receipts. We don't want to see them. 
Yeah, Adrian, your point. I know we're we're out of time, but you know, it, it, yeah, the integration story is about those who didn't, who didn't, uh, who were not able to or refused to, uh, you know, stand uh, with just grace and dignity and stay quiet uh, and 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 um, succeed at a high level, which is hard enough in, in professional baseball, let alone dealing with all this social pressure. I mean, that defines so many of those athletes. Alex Johnson, somebody I'm thinking about, uh, Rogelio Morey, otherwise known as Roger Morey. You know, when he stood in a catatonic state in the Texas Ranger locker room in 1978 because he had a mental breakdown from all the pressures he had been experiencing in his own life, but also pitching for the Red Sox, he pitched for the Atlanta Braves, and pitching in Arlington, Texas in the late 70s as a Puerto Rican who didn't speak English. Uh, you know, I mean, those are the stories, you know, I wrote about that that story. Those are the stories that need to be told more of those because that's part of the, the consequences of that era as well. And if you don't fit into that grace and dignity narrative, it's it's presented as a character flaw, and it's not. We are at the end of an hour, and next week we are going to begin our series of interstitial mini episodes. And I, I think you just like to say the word interstitial. I love saying the word interstitial. It's I like saying the word propinquity. I like I like having a good vocabulary. Say the word propinquity. I've noticed. You want to demonstrate how articulate you are. <laughs> when I was in elementary school, the other kids would say, you go home and read the dictionary, don't you? And I never had. But once they suggested it, then, yeah, I did. I love having the right word. My, one of my, my favorite quotes in all of history and literature is Samuel Clemens saying that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is akin to the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. And it's a great thing to remember when you're writing and you you uh, you feel like just taking the easy route out instead of, of nailing the right thing. So next week, we will have an in-between episode, a mini episode, a shorter episode, an attenuated episode. An interstellar episode? An interstellar. Only if they put it on a gold record and launch it into space with the next pioneer of voyager probe i'm not sure which of you will be joining me some of you will be and we will be remembering some presidents with david roth esquire and i hope you will join us then oh one other thing and it doesn't take any big words to say it's just four syllables and six words it's rate review and subscribe we would greatly appreciate it if you go to the podcatcher of your choice and do so for say it ain't contagious it is now available on all the major services wherever podcasts are sold or vended or rented or acquired, however you get them, they're generally free. Well, if you let them know that you like us, then more people will see that we're here and the show will gain a greater audience, which in turn will allow us to keep bringing you conversations like this one. So let your fingers peregrinate, perambulate, let them do the walking over to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review and subscribe. Thank you so much. Any final words, anyone? <laughs> Tova as the uh, ostensible host. The ostensible host. What a big word! <laughs> that two-dollar vocabulary there from Steve no, Goldman. Thank you for joining us again, it's a lot of fun for us. I hope it's a lot of fun for you, and we will see you again next time. Uh, I think we should have Goldman Bingo and just have words. If you guys keep <laughs> making fun of me for this stuff, I'm going to mention my SAT verbal scores. So. Susan 
it's so great to finally be able to get together again. Oh, it sure is. And I really appreciate you picking up the bill. I'm happy to. I've got the extra cash. Since we've all been driving so much more again, I've been using GetUpside, the free gas app that pays you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get paid cash when you buy gas with the GetUpside app? Yes, up to 25 cents a gallon. Cash back every time I buy gas. Does that actually add up to anything? Some months, I make 200 to 300 bucks. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the free GetUpside app now. Download the free GetUpside app now in the App Store or Google Play to save up to 25 cents a gallon when you buy gas. Use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's up to 50 cents a gallon on your next fill-up. You can cash out anytime to PayPal or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code FILL. Switching to Geico is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, Geico makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea.